Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation about IP focused on the issues, challenges and stories relevant to those who create and manage intellectual property. Part of the UK's High Court, the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, the IPEC, provides fast, cost-effective intellectual property litigation proceedings without the risk of paying uncapped costs to an opposing party. In this episode, Apple Yardley's solicitors, partner Bill Lister and Chris Thomas discuss when a case should be taken to the IPEC, the mechanisms for doing so, and what proceedings may look like once a case reaches the IPEC. Bill and Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Charlie. My name is Bill Lister. I'm a solicitor, having spent uh, my initial career practicing as a barrister, and I'm a partner in Apple Yard Lees. I'm joined today by uh, my colleague, Chris Thomas, who is also a solicitor. Chris? Thanks, Bill. Yes, I have a background in dealing with uh, litigation, and I'm currently practicing the area of IP disputes, so covering a range of disputes, really, any dispute which involves intellectual property and may end up a court. Chris and I are going to talk today about the IPEC to get in and out as quickly as possible with minimal risk and minimal irrecoverable costs. What's your view? Yes, for the most part, my advice is to go through IPEC. There are one or two clients who have been sizable commercial entities. And when you talk about the cost cap in IPEC and the cost liability for the other side, make a deliberate strategic choice to go to the high court. And There are also cases where if your claim is above £500,000 in value, so it's a very significant commercial claim. That's the damages cap of the IPEC? Yes. So if you can already quantify that your claim is above that value, which is obviously a significant claim, then you may make a decision to go through the High Court. But for most clients I have who've been involved in a dispute, the greatest thing that puts them off pursuing or protecting their IP rights, which is really what this is about, is the uncertainty of knowing what their potential exposure to costs is from the other side. Yes, exactly. So we as a solicitor will advise on a client's own costs and give a cost estimate for dealing with a matter. But you don't know what the other side's costs are, how they're being incurred. And one of the things about litigation, which I think is not always intuitive as well, is that there is an uncertain outcome because ultimately the decision is being made by the judge. And so your solicitor advising you on their best view on the law and what your rights are. But obviously that depends on evidence and the nature of the dispute. But I think in in most cases that end up at court, you're talking about two sides that are arguing over who is in the right. And ultimately the judge is the final arbiter of that. So because you cannot absolutely predict what the outcome is going to be, unless you're extremely confident in your case, the uncertainty of knowing what your potential exposure to the other side's cost could be if you lose the case is a huge factor in deciding how you want to proceed. Uh, And I think even for larger commercial clients, they'll have a budget in mind and they, they want to know what their exposure is. Yeah, I agree with that, because often the most important part of any case is the injunction. It's the cease and desist element rather than the compensation. The number of cases where damages really are over £500,000 are actually you know, quite rare. Most cases are much below that. And even if you did bring a case in the high court, it is open to the other side to make an application to the high court to remit the case back down to the IPEC. And if the judge in the high court comes to the view that 
the damages are well within the jurisdiction of the IPEC, then that judge is also is then very likely to remit the case down in any event. And then you've just wasted further costs. I mean, another thing worth thinking about also is that whereas in the IPEC, you are very likely to get the presiding judge of the IPEC, it's on a Judge Hakon, hearing not just the trial, but also all the interim stages leading up to trial. So by the time he gets to trial, if he does, he actually knows your case quite well already. In the high court, you can get anybody with great respect to the judges of the high court. You might get a high court judge and they are absolutely superlative and probably amongst the best in the world. But equally, you, you could get a part-time judge, a deputy high court judge, who is likely to be a senior Queen's counsel who's sitting for that day as a high court judge. You just can't tell. So there is some variation of quality in the high court, with at least in the IPEC, you know exactly what you're what you're getting, you know who your trial judge is likely to be, and you can plan accordingly. Also, the IPEC has exactly the same powers as the High Court, that is, the power to grant an injunction, power to order delivery up of infringing products, a power to order uh, at the claimant's election or choice, either an inquiry as to damages or an account of net profits, and has the power to order dissemination, that is publication of the judgment in a journal of the claimant's choosing, but at the defendant's expense, just to rub real salt into the wound. And the trouble is that for a defendant, the risk of publication of a judgment like that can have an existential effect on their business. Just imagine what their own customers and supply chain might think uh, seeing something like that. And often that's a very good reason if you are a defendant to, uh, in the IPEC to start thinking about settling fairly quickly. So what do you do if you need to go to court? Well, if you are a claimant, the first thing you need to do is to instruct a barrister. And a barrister should always be asked for a second opinion on liability. Just to have that second opinion, it's always worth having. And the barrister will then draft the particulars of claim, which sets out the claimant's case. In the IPEC, the particulars of claim are normally slightly bulkier, more detailed than in the high court because of streamlined procedure it's much more front end loaded as much more evidence goes in at the outset so the parties can see where they are equally as far as the defendant is concerned on receiving service uh, of particular claim the defendant should also go to a barrister who will draft uh, a detailed defense you can't anymore just say deny 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 i deny it all got nothing to, nothing to do with me you actually have to plead a positive case as to why you deny it and if you can't plead that positive case and your barrister advises as a defendant that you are in serious risk uh, of going down on liability it's worthwhile at that point discussing whether one ought to be uh, looking for a negotiated way out because Given that you get much more upfront in the particular claim in the IPEC, uh, and the case is much more front-end loaded, it's much easier to crash test your case as claimant, and the defendant can see very quickly just how strong your case actually is. So having served the statements of case, both sides should then need to sit back uh, and regroup. It's worth sort of briefly explaining the, the difference between the role of a solicitor and a barrister, because it's not common to all jurisdictions. But in the UK, there are specialist advocates who would ultimately put your case before the judge. And because they are the people who are, will be making the oral arguments at trial, they would tend to draft the 
statement of case, the, the document on which the claim is formally based. There are some disadvantages to you know having a split council, but one of the advantages is that they do come at it with a fresh pair of eyes and they are a step removed from you as a client, a step removed from the solicitor. And in IP cases, there are a specialist set of barristers who deal with IP matters. They're experiencing going before judges. Because they have this step back and perhaps are not so personally invested in a case always, perhaps the first time they look at it, certainly, there is an advantage in that you will get, I think, a very impartial view on the merits of your claim uh, and the evidence in support of it. And the advantage of having that perspective, I think, is that when it comes to this this stage where you're, you're drafting your, your formal particulars of claim or your formal defence, quite often that will involve some drilling down and will focus another side who has perhaps tried to avoid really addressing what the claim is by game of brinkmanship, seeing if you're willing to go to court, is the point at which you get to the statement of case, they really do need to instruct a solicitor, a barrister will be instructed to, to advise and on the merits of the case. And I think that for that reason, quite often you will see a dispute settling shortly after the issue of proceedings where you haven't got as far at a pre-action stage. And I think the the regressible reason for that is that certainly uh, people who are used to infringing other people's rights know that it is a big step to take to issue a claim to court because of the cost liability which arises depending on who wins. And once you've issued a claim, then it certainly signals to the other side that you are serious about pursuing it. So you have the the statements of case which are filed at court and served on on the other side. There is a a slightly different time limit for a defendant to respond for IP cases than for a normal claim. They have a bit longer. It is important to show that you've complied with the pre-action protocol. It's 42 days in the IPEC, uh, so long as the claimant has wanted that they have adhered to all the steps required in the practice direction pre-action conduct. Uh, otherwise, it, it jumps up to 70 days, uh, but that rarely ever happens. And I think it is worth, at this point, looking at how where the IPEC starts to seriously diverge in terms of its procedure from the High Court because once the statements of case are served, then the next stage is the case management conference. Now, what would happen in the High Court is that the parties would start preparing for a costs and case management conference, the core of which really is cost budgeting. And the parties have to go to a great lengths, often very expensive lengths, to actually budget for what their costs are going to be to take the matter to trial. But that isn't required in the IPIC at all, and therefore that itself saves costs. It's not required because the IPEC, as Chris mentioned earlier, uh, has a cost cap in terms of the costs that the successful party can recover. The costs of uh, winning the trial are capped at £50,000. Now, that doesn't mean that is the claimant's total cost because the solicitor's costs could be 100, 150,000. But if the claimant lost, the most the claimant could be ordered to pay the other side is 50,000 pounds. And equally, 50,000 pounds is all the claimant's going to get back if the claimant wins. Strategically, this is also important because unless a defendant has a counterclaim, a defendant is in a lose-lose situation. If a defendant wins, they will get their costs back 
capped at £50,000. But as I said a moment ago, that actual cost could be a lot more than that. Therefore, if the, the actual cost of £100,000, they're £50,000 down just for the privilege of winning without getting anything back whatsoever. But the, the cost cap isn't quite as simple as that, the way it works, because it's subject to both parties reaching stage cost caps. So to give you an example, the stage cost cap up to the preparation for and service of the relevant statement of case, that's particularly as a claim or defence, is £7,000. But if, say, one only spends £5,000 on preparing one statement of case, that reduces the £50,000 at the end to £48,000. If one makes an application in the proceedings, the cost cap for the application is £3,000. Now, the application might actually cost £5,000, but all you're going to get back is £3,000. So the cost cap has to be used very strategically and very carefully. But at least it ensures that if a party brings a claim or the party party defends a claim, they know what they're in for at the outset were they to lose. Whereas in the High Court, in the larger IP claims, it costs can be racked up into seven figures in a pharmaceutical patent case. And very few companies can afford that sort of liability or that sort of risk. So that's probably the most important point at which the IPEC diverges from the High Court. But also the CMC itself is different to a cost and case management conference in the High Court in that it's issue focused. And what the parties are expected to do before the CMC is try and agree between them exactly what are the issues in the case. Because if they don't, the judge is going to tell them what the issues in the case are, and the judge will not be amused by having to do so, because the parties are expected to sort this out between themselves, however much they may spit on the ground the other walks on. The importance of the issues is that the evidence each party is allowed to call and the disclosure each party is entitled to is strictly limited to the issues. So whereas in the high court we're going to have a trial that lasts as long as one needs and can call as many witnesses as one needs in the ipec you only have a two-day trial it can't go on to three days because on day three the judge starts another trial so he can't hear you and a runover uh, simply uh, is not contemplated by the court so that limits the number of witnesses you call and very often the only witness to be called will be the person who signs the statement of truth on the particulars of claim or the defense given that the case is front-end loaded and often very few other witnesses uh, are required or at least are required to actually give oral evidence first of all i think on costs as we were touching on before it's it's really important to know uh, what your exposure to the other side's costs are if it goes all the way to trial and it's worth saying as well that the large sums that we're talking about, we're talking about 18 months worth of litigation. But the advantage of having the stage caps in IPEC as well is that you know, for example, as a claimant, that if you have a certain budget, you want to pursue it, but halfway through a claim, you're not absolutely sure if you want to go all the way, then you know what stages of litigation have occurred and you know what your potential exposure is to costs. So let's say, for example, you issue a claim at court they file a defense and on review, you think, actually, you know what, this isn't one we're going to pursue. There is a staged fee of 7,000 for particulars of claim, 10,000 for a defense. You know what that exposure is. And that, that is a big advantage, I think. And it really helps with businesses and, and anyone involved in disputes to know, to know what that liability is. In terms of the case management you get in IPEC and the focus on the issues in dispute, again, that is an advantage, I think, to litigants, because the main 
headache, <laughs> put it like this, uh, with litigation or can be is disclosure. And disclosure relates to the duty to, to search for and provide lists initially, but ultimately to provide copies of key evidence relating to a dispute. And within a, a dispute, the duty of standard disclosure extends to a duty to provide um, documents which, which support or adversely affect your case. Now, if you are a business and let's say somebody is complaining about communications you've had with your customers over a five-year period. So let's say they're accusing you of infringing their IP rights and the period of time uh, over which that is alleged to have occurred is quite a long time. You may have thousands of emails which are potentially disclosable and that can be a, a significant burden in any dispute. And the advantage, I think, of having this, this case management conference in IPEC, which focuses on the issues in dispute, is that it does enable the judge to have tight control on disclosure, which I think can make a big difference to the parties and the cost and time spent preparing and dealing with the duty of disclosure. We had three trials over summer, all held remotely because of the pandemic. And notice in one of the cases, and perhaps the barristers thought as well, is the extent to which the witnesses are, uh, let's say, under the same rigour of standing up in a courtroom in London, as opposed to being sat down at home. They're only supposed to have access to their own witness statement when they're giving evidence. And, and certainly that was the case in our trials. But I think it can be a more relaxing experience to be cross-examined when you're in a home environment than it is if you've got had, had to have your day in court. That can be double-edged sword because you may want to put a witness for the other side under the cosh, and that's much more difficult remotely. And I think, I think that's worth bearing in mind. Okay, Chris, so I think probably the trial will last two days, and then the judge will have given a direction as to when he or she is going to hand down judgment, normally about 28 days thereafter. Judgment will be delivered to the parties about two or three days before it's handed down, so the parties can have a think about what subsequent orders they need, what cost orders they need. But during that two or three days, uh, the parties must keep the judgment absolutely secret. Solicitors are entitled to show their client the document, but the client must be told in writing that the document is highly confidential and the disclosure of the document to any third party is likely to render the client uh, in contempt of court. If the defendant wins, the claimant loses, then the defendant will recover costs up to £50,000 from the claimant. If the claimant wins, then the claimant will get its costs up to £50,000 from the defendant. And the case will then be remitted for part two, which is essentially the trial on quantum of compensation. Now, how does that work? Well, as I said earlier, the claimant has an election, and it's an election only for the claimant to make, not for the defendant, as where the claimant goes for an inquiry as to damages, what damage has the infringement done to the claimant's business, or, and you can't have both, only one or the other, an account of the profits, net profits made by the defendant. Um, the court treat uh, an account of profits on the basis that the defendant was trading as the claimant's agent, and it's all the profit that would have been made on that basis. And there are all sorts of rules as to what overheads can be deducted, which again is really for another podcast. But essentially, all working overheads can be deducted, as can some general overheads. What's important, however, 
is that at this stage, there is a second cost cap. And the cost cap for the quantum phase is £25,000. Believe me, that isn't very high at all when one bears in mind that normally forensic accountants are going to be needed at this stage. And again, forensic accountants are terribly expensive and could swallow up the entire cost cap. The cost cap is set low deliberately by the court because the court doesn't expect parties to go to a quantum trial. It expects parties to settle uh, after judgment has been handed down. Chris, is that your experience? Yeah, so following the the initial judgment, you have a disposal hearing where, as you say, the the form of the order that's made following judgment. And after that, when you're talking about quantum, you have to have a conversation, certainly if you're you're on the losing side and you need to consider what payments you need to make to the other side. You need to consider, well, what profits have actually been made, what net profits have been made, not what your turnover is, but how, as you say, you know, what overheads are deductible. And I think that at that point, was at any stage in proceedings, the best way of dealing with it is probably to, to draw up a witness statement, give full disclosure of the evidence you have in support of what those profits are, because often they're not hugely significant sums, or certainly when you deduct overheads, and try, try and settle to avoid ultimately having the costs of the quantum phase as well. What we'll do at that stage is it will give, uh, immediately after judgment in favour of a claimant, a very rough and ready disclosure called Island Records and Tring Disclosure of profits, the trading activity of the defendant in the infringing goods. And the purpose of that disclosure is only to give the claimant at least a chance of making some sort of educated guess as to whether it is better served by uh, electing damages or an account of profits. A more detailed order for disclosure will be given at the CMC for the quantum trial a little, little further down the road. But at least the claimant will at least have the basic disclosure. I mean, if he doesn't like the basic disclosure, it's very difficult to challenge because it is only intended to be rough and ready. It's only intended just to be enough to enable the claimant to make some sort of educated guess at which way it is better served. And so the court won't usually entertain uh, any application for further and better disclosure at that stage. The other point I thought uh, worth mentioning and something that parties should be aware of at a pre-action stage is that when you're involved in proceedings which go to court that you do have a duty as a party that may be giving disclosure to preserve documents and ensure that those are not destroyed and that you need to think about that in terms of not only paper documents but electronic records So, for example, if someone is objecting to the use of a website, be careful if you want to update a website page. And that is something to be aware of at an early stage. Okay, thank you very much for listening to us. We'll be happy to answer any questions if you would like to email them to us. Otherwise, have a good day. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Lees or email us at ip at appleyardlees.com. And please don't forget to leave us a star rating or review on your favourite podcast platform.